Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I'm joined, as ever, by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm here to talk about Sting of Death, which is one of the films in the He Came From The Swamp, the William Greffet collection, Blu-ray box set, which was Dan's choice for this fortnight. Now... I am going to be up front and make it clear that this box set was not for me. Um, <laughs> so I am very thankful that Dan's chosen to cover Wreck next fortnight. To be clear, that is another Dan choice and it's a magnificent choice. I'm absolutely on board with that one. I love Wreck so much. But this fortnight we have Sting, <laughs> Sting of Death. So Dan, why don't you tell the precious Arrowheads all about the plot of Sting of Death? Sting of Death is a cross between an AIP beach party picture and Phantom of the Opera. It's about a man who, with a slightly droopy eye, who is bullied so hard that he uses stolen scientific technology to put a bag on his head. There you go. And it's a a dangerous bag, isn't it? There wasn't... I mean, I don't know much about special effects creation, Dan. You'll have to help me with this. But do you... You do normally put the ability to breathe into your masks, don't you? Well, so yes, yes, you do. <laughs> but here's a thing, right? So this comes with a heavy caveat that, we'll, that I'll say at the end. They do say that they put a breathing tube down the back of it, and it was only that they would turn off the pump for that during takes because it was too noisy. And that's not that dissimilar to how stuntmen operate when they're wearing burn masks. So, you know, when a, when a stunt guy's on fire, he can't breathe through that mask because he'd be breathing in hot air, he'd burn his lungs. So every time you see a burn stunt, that guy's holding his breath for, du- for the duration of that action. I guess the big difference is that a stunt, you know, a stunt guy only does that maybe a few times in a day. He isn't doing it every day. And most importantly, there's a team of medics and, like, safety people there, whereas... A graphic set sounds like a fucking hellscape of death. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And um, wh- what I am going to say that's positive uh, before I get to <laughs> my list of things that, that aren't so positive, if you are a fan of these films, like Dan is, this is an incredible set. You get astonishing value for your money. It's genuinely impressive. You get five movies, uh, a feature-length documentary, and a hardback book which is very cool. Tastes will vary in terms of the actual content, but there is no denying the dedication Arrow has to archiving and celebrating these films for their audience. Yeah, absolutely. I think they've they've really gone above and beyond sort of putting this all together. And I think, and a lot of these films just haven't been available at all since they were in the cinemas. Like Sting of Death specifically was basically thought lost. And they talk about, on the extras, they talk about the fact that when they got the 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 raw elements for the for the film they thought they were so shot that there wasn't going to be anything like they weren't going to be able to do anything with it and it was actually a surprise that they were able to salvage the film and and i think they've done a really good job like you know it's not the most beautifully produced movie so what you get especially with that quite lurid technicolor feel is very impressive and that that carries across for the whole uh, the whole set yeah yeah it's a a feat of archiving endurance basically like this is kind of where arrow get their reputation as being uh the criterion of trash cinema now i obviously think there's more to arrow than that i'm certainly not dismissing them with that descriptor but some people do use it to describe the company 
if I'm going to tell you to watch an Arrow film, it'll probably be something like The Sorrow and the Pity. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm a massive stick-in-the-mud misery guts, and I literally made a film critiquing movies like these and, and commentaries like these. So I really should just shut the hell up and hand over to Dan. Dan, why are you an advocate for these films? Well, so first off, I wouldn't say I was an advocate for every film in this set. Okay. Uh, there is some there is some problematic stuff in the way in which these films were made that just doesn't sit with me. I would say easily for me, easily the best two films in the set are Sting of Death and the documentary He Came from the Swamp, which is great because it it covers it, it sort of shows you what you're in for and it allows you to pick and choose from the other ones. And there is fun to be had elsewhere in the set. But the this is it's a term that I associate with vinegar syndrome, but this is very much regional filmmaking insofar mm-hmm. as, you know, they were just like very few people on this were professional. Every now and then Greffy would manage to get in a proper actor. And obviously by, you know, further on in his career, Greffy was a like a working director. Like he, he went to Hollywood. He did some big stuff mm. for, 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 for big movies, mm. but, but it's still incredibly parochial. It's incredibly small. And I think that one of the reasons you were maybe set up for a, not the best experience you could have had with this film is that this is very much the kind of film you should watch with a, a room full of friends. You're all slightly drunk. Maybe it's the second or third film you've watched in the night and you can all like hoot and laugh and talk over the dumb bits and and then it's a really good time. And that's not really a lockdown movie. No, exactly. That, that's that's a, a very good point. And, and actually, for me as well... The, the less I know about this stuff, the better. Say if I'd have watched this at yours, Dan, like, and we had some beers and like we'd watched it in the garden or something like that, I'm sure I, I would have been howling with laughter alongside you. But one of the advantages of these kinds of uh, box sets is that obviously you get so much information and for fans it's amazing. But for people like Dan and I, who have made stuff and kind of know that even the stories that are told on this disc, like the commentary to Sting of Death is insane. It's literally like a little more flesh. Um, It did make me feel kind of good about that film because like (laughs) it's basically this, (laughs) this commentary. Um, They say some absolutely insane things and laugh about some crazy things. And so, yeah, if you're, kind of got an abundance of empathy then um it's kind of a a bit tricky to put yourself onto that set and imagine what it would be like to put the actors through some of the stuff they would put through and and also the way they see some of these actors and the way they talk about some of these actors i'm kind of skirting around things because uh, i again i'm not a moral outrage person and i certainly don't want to put anyone off from watching these films or enjoying them or anything like that all i'm saying is that for me personally there were some things on here that made me a, a bit uncomfortable um and i'm so sorry i really thought this was going to be just like a, a a super fun normal fortnight but again <laughs> again with these 70s films <laughs> Damn. I mean, yeah like if i'm looking through my notes i've written it's a guide how not to make a film if you want to avoid a manslaughter charge <laughs> and then and then further down i've written working on a graffy set sounds fucking horrible all the people say they had a great time but they must be either very lucky very delirious or delirious presumably from a head trauma sustained on set 
yeah i mean there's a bit where um where they point out like someone's got like a kind of scab on their head and the way Lotter, they work that into the film is seamless yeah exactly Henning Lotter basically asked you know what's the story behind that is why have that kind of makeup effect and Greffe reveals that it's not a makeup effect the guy just had an accident on set so and so they had to paint it in like there are a couple of shots where it's gone but then as it healed they had to sort of keep it going and paint it back in for the rest of the movie so yeah it, it is kind of insane and if you can kind of shut off your your empathy circuits, it's darkly funny in in a in a weird kind of way. This this commentary, much like a little more flesh, is a, a dark comedy. But then it just hit me: this is real. These are people that they're talking about. And uh, you know, Bill, if you're listening to this, uh, uh, my apologies, but I, I have to be honest on, on this podcast. And I know that Dan's got an interview with with Bill later on, so there's a small chance he'll be listening to this. But just, you know, I'm sure you're not planning on making any more movies, but if you are, please don't kill someone uh, with, with <laughs> or, an alligator or, yeah. or drowning or <laughs> what, I mean, whatever it, else. It wouldn't be a graphic film if someone didn't sustain a very bad head injury very early on in production. I think pretty much every single film has one of those stories attached to it. So uh, I'd just like to sort of circle back and um, maybe saying that you're an ad- advocate for these films is the, the the wrong way to go about it like why did this set leap out at you as something that you wanted to cover on the podcast to be completely honest it was because i didn't know that much about him and it was you know he was always described as the herschel gordon lewis of the of, of the florida swamps and if anything's going to sell me on someone it's that and so i wanted to just dive in and watch all of this and i and, and like you said, I think knowing less is is probably easier. It was an interesting experience to watch these movies and be like, oh, this is quite fun. And then listen to the commentary and be like, oh, this is quite dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't I don't have tons to say on this because, I mean, I do in a way. I've got a lot of notes here, Dan. And again, I'm not saying this to put anyone off watching it or, or buying it. And also, I'm not saying that because arrow make me say that i genuinely think that if you enjoy this stuff good for you anything that makes you happy at the moment as long as it's not hurting anyone bill greffe uh (laughs) (laughs) i'm on board for it so um you know i'm not moral outraging here i'm just in a in a kind of tricky situation which is why i was hoping that you'd have you well, know, okay, loads so let's of memories go... of watching them and, and all no, this kind of stuff. No, no, not at all. But but let's but let's talk about some of the stuff that I do think is really fun about it. Um, and this is something that Hannah Lotter touches on in the commentary. There's this really fun juxtaposition between the aesthetic of the film and the tone of the film. What happens in the movie is straight up horror stuff. It's it's really quite dark. But the aesthetic is this really like brightly coloured te- like Technicolor beach party aesthetic with all these kids in bright silk shirts dancing around on piers like doing crazy like fun dances from a a guest musical artist you know and it is this like very boisterous era specific mood to the film and one that i actually quite like separately from this film as well like i think that's quite a fun silly period of cinema a chunk of cinema Mm. but then it's also got this like really like they just fucking murder everybody in the film. And it does feel very out of place with the aesthetic. And that's really attractive to me. I really like those sort of like unexpected connections, unexpected pairings. 
Yeah, without wanting to get into uh, psychoanalysis, I do love that that kind of uh, juxtaposition because I think it's kind of revealing about what was going on because it, it's like this collusion between fun Friday night throwaway entertainment being made in genuinely dark circumstances. Yeah. And that darkness has bubbled up from the subconscious into the film itself. Um, again, I'm, I'm certainly not um, slandering <laughs> Bill Greffe by saying that. Um, I think the stories that are told on the Sting of Death commentary alone, like the, the bit where they're laughing about someone shooting someone on set <laughs> and I, I do i do have to read this out right because yeah greffe laughs about this guy gary crutcher shooting a producer um and that is with a gun not a camera and he says gary i love you gary and i are good friends and he knows he was a wild and crazy guy back in the 60s and 70s and hen and lotta says weren't we all <laughs> and r- r- they're being jolly about someone shooting someone <laughs> yeah what, what can I say? What can I say on this bloody episode, Dan? Um, no, it's all right. Like, to be honest, I think you're like, your discomfort with it is is quite valuable here. I think that this is, I, I think you're going to turn on as many people to this as you turn off from it with your reaction because there is a sort of rubbernecking associated with this kind of film as well. Like, it, it definitely fit, falls into the... Like I'm not, you're not watching this film because it's expertly made. And I don't think Bill's under any, like... Uh, pretenses that people are going to see these things as slick movies you know he gets compared to Herschel Gordon Lewis and Herschel Gordon Lewis was a rank opportunist who came from the world of marketing and got into films because it was profitable Mm. Um, but actually I'd say he's got more in common with Roger Corman than Lewis because Lewis had such a distinct like style and tone all the way through his career but Greffy doesn't at all he's literally just doing the thing that is gonna make money next and so he jumps around genres he jumps around style um and i think that that's one of the reasons possibly he's not as well known as some of the other sort of exploitation names of that era like Mm. lewis and wishman and like they did one thing and while they may not have done it particularly well they kind of did it the best that anyone was doing it yeah um whereas whereas Greffy really casts a wide net in in terms of the the projects that he takes on and so i do think that this was just like what are the kids like they're like dancing and bright colors and silk shirts and, and um thingy sadaka neil sadaka music so we'll put all that in it and then also like horrors doing well and like monsters and i've got this guy who can make a monster apparently i'm not going to check not going to look into that we'll just let him turn up with it and 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 that that'll make money and it it did you know it made him money yeah absolutely and yeah i i think that's a very good point i think my um you know my huffing uh and reading this stuff out i think it it, it will probably sell a couple of box sets and so i'm sure bill will be happy about that because you're right it is that the money is kind of the driving force that's very clear um across the 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 commentaries and the documentary and stuff and yeah i i guess Uh, in terms of the kind of money side of things and this is kind of this is my failing really but i'm from a slightly different school of direction because i just want to express myself artistically and and talk about 
you know, um, stuff, philosophical stuff and psychological stuff and all that, that kind of thing. Um, that's my driving force. Um, but a lot, and I mean a lot, of indie horror films do get made with making money as, as the main driving factor. Well, and obviously the best films have a perfect balance between the two. Like, it's all very well making art films, but if no fucker sees them, you're in trouble. Um, and And the great films do have that balance between wanting to express writers and directors and, and everyone involved wanting to express themselves artistically, but having that eye and that ear on the audience and kind of making sure that, that people are happy there as well, which is um, commercial, you know? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing is that, like, entry level, the director should always want to make an artistic statement. Otherwise, you end up with films like this. Mm. And for the vast majority of films, it's also okay for the producers, and particularly the executive producers, to just want a commercial thing. Yeah. Because that's their job, you know? Exactly. The film is being funded as an investment. It's being funded because people expect to make money out of it. And and to be surprised that a producer wants the most commercial version of a film is, you know, like the frog giving the scorpion a lift across the river exactly. and being surprised yeah. when he gets stung. Yeah. Like, what, what do you mean you want me to cut out the bit at the end where we kill the family? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, you knew I was a producer when I came on the job. but But I do think that on those really really great films the the need to tell a particular story or the or the love of it on an artistic level does go all the way up to the top and i and i think that that's why it's so hard to have that kind of artistic value to those massive blockbusters not to besmirch them they serve their purpose and i quite enjoy a lot of them but mm. but there's so much money on the line so many people have to be happy with it so to go and watch it or to rent it or whatever you know for it to make its money back that they can't take risks like that they can't ostracize the audience yeah you know so so i do think that that's why you and i tend to find our favorites at the lower like not the micro budget stuff although often there are great films being made there as well but like in the sort of the shallow end of the budgetary pool because that's where people are able to to make bold choices, to take risks. A hundred percent. That's exactly it. And I guess that's why I was a little disappointed here, because it is so rare for, you know, like you look at Al Adamson stuff, and even though it's for the same circuit, there's some crazy, like, interesting artistic stuff in there. And I guess there is crazy, interesting stuff in, in these movies, but... I don't know, maybe it's something that's reflected in the tone. Yeah, I I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it, but I just didn't have as much fun um, with this stuff. And again, yeah, it could be, like you say, I was watching it on my own. But but yeah. And to make it clear, you know, I'm a, a fierce advocate for the indie spirit and of making things outside of the Hollywood system and of telling the stories you want to tell. And, and that's basically whatever you want to tell. Like I say, as long as adults are involved and no one's getting hurt. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I'm no prude in that respect. And and obviously accidents happen. But if accidents are happening on most of your sets, then... Um... Not, just, not just accidents, <laughs> the same accident. It's always a head injury. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm again not having a go at Ari for releasing it but I just literally that's all I have to say on this one 
it really is. I've got so many notes, but I don't want to like kick something when it's not when it's down. But please, Dan, stop me talking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, so I, I can't remember if it was with you or with someone else, but the the oh, I'll do it myself attitude of Herschel Gordon Lewis. You know, when you're watching Blood Feast and it's just everything is by Herschel Gordon Lewis. And yeah. Yet the you know when I first started watching that stuff, I I sort of I joked that like people would let him down and so he'd just do it himself and that's how those films got made mm. and then later on I read interviews with him and I ended up interviewing him myself and and it and it was that was actually what happened like half the time he was just let down and so casting was just like a friend who was nearby when someone didn't turn up or you know so I do like the kind of nothing's going to stop me making this movie attitude to mm. a lot of these I think Greffy shares that as well yeah I agree that some of the 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 lack of uh, care <laughs> that maybe Greffe had with some of his cast is a bit, and and other like factors um, can be a bit daunting, but it's certainly fascinating. Yeah, and you know, it's a it's a snapshot of a of an age that that just doesn't exist anymore. It, and sorry to mention my own film again, Dan, but what you just said is kind of relevant because with a, a little more flesh, obviously, I. I um, directed it and produced it and shot it and edited it. And, yeah, I was basically the only crew member every day except for the day that you came on set and and Rich was your assistant, Rich Rose. And, yeah, you're, you're, you're juggling a lot of different things, but at all times the cast's physical health and mental health was obviously the priority because... <laughs> It has to be. They're human beings, um, and that's why I can't. That's why that's I wrestle the with kind stuff of like this. Wishy-washy liberal attitude is going to keep you out of Hollywood, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I know it probably is, isn't it? That's 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 why I'm not going to make the next Batman movie. That's it. But anyway, right, enough enough of this. Should we go on to recommendations based on the film? Or, or do you yeah. have any more to say? No, 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 let's let's go on to that. I'm, I can't wait to hear what you recommend based on this. Well, actually... Um, Sam's, Sam's first recommendation is just sitting alone in a dark room without a screen and thinking about yourself. <laughs> um, actually, uh, this was one of the easiest ones I've ever done, bizarrely, um, recommendations-wise. Um, first up, I've got Blood and Flesh, the real life and ghastly death of Al Adamson. Now, this is the documentary that played Fright Fest a couple of years ago, um, produced by my friend Heather Buckley, and it contains a true story that's as crazy as any exploitation picture. It's about another B-movie director who churned out horror films for the drive-in circuit. But forget the films. Adamson's life is what makes this a recommendation from me. It's just an incredible story. Blood and flesh, the real life and ghastly death of Al Adamson. I recommend it. God, that was hard to get through. Dan, <laughs> um, what's what's first up from you? Uh, first up from me is actually a film mentioned, uh, I think, in the documentary on the, on the set, but it's from uh, 1971. It's Del Tenney's I Eat Your Skin. Yeah. Um, and it's another Florida, like uh, indie drive-through, drive-through drive-in uh, circuit movie. Uh, it's a black and white sort of zombie picture. Um, I think it's actually tremendous fun. And there's a really nice uh, double bill box set Blu-ray of it in the states with "I Drink Your Blood," which is a like 
Fear of the Hippies LSD Rampage movie, mm. which is also really good fun. But yeah, I Eat Your Skin's a, a great one of these uh, driving circuit trash movies. Yeah, that is a, a really good recommendation. And also on A Little More Flesh, I played the lead. <laughs> and uh, what else did I do? I wrote it. So yeah, that's two more things on the list of... Um, did you write any music for it? Not that one, but um, I'm working on a new film at the moment um, and I am doing the music for that. So yeah, anyway, right. Bloody Terror, the films of Norman J. Warren. Uh, that's my next recommendation based on Sting of Death. This is another box set about low-budget exploitation films centering around a director. But Norman J. Warren was a British director, so it's a little more civilised, but only a little. <laughs> um, it's an indicator release, um, but there are still lovely, limited editions available. So I really do recommend getting this one before it sells out. It has incredible extras, much yeah. like the, the Bill Greffe uh, box set. It, it's just, they really are kind of a, a really good pairing. So, uh, oh, and the packaging is just beautiful as well. Like, it looks so yeah, nice on your shelf. those cards are so nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's really good. So, um, Bloody Terror, the films of Norman J. Warren, I recommend it. I, I feel like Warren's just a, a, a step up artistically. Oh yeah, I think there's yeah, like he's he's in a slight. I mean, I guess maybe it's because we never had the drive-in circuit, so there wasn't quite the same demand for incredibly cheap, like cheaply produced, th- like throwaway disposable cinema in the same way. Uh, well, absolutely, and and he was also at the forefront of the kind of British horror new wave. So he was yeah. coming off the back of Hammer and Amicus, and making things that were kind of more edgy and pushing boundaries, but with that sheen of class as well to a certain extent so yeah, um yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah i'm definitely you know um yeah i'll, I'll shut up that's <laughs> uh, a great set yeah really good set so um past couple of weeks dan what have you been watching uh no i've got another one based on oh uh, shit yeah sorry <laughs> based on graphy um actually got two because i had a backup because i didn't know if we were going to cross over although i thought it was relatively unlikely uh, next one is uh, Galaxy Invader from 1985. This is directed by Don Dola, who did Night Beast. It actually, I think it predates Night Beast by a couple of years, and it is very, very weird and cheap. Uh, it's 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 very fun, but it's definitely, again, one you probably want to watch with some friends. Uh, it's interesting in that it covers a lot of the same ground as Night Beast, which I've recommended before, but in a very different, uh, with a very different slant. In this, it's about uh, like a flying saucer crashes. There's a sort of swamp thing looking alien stomping about. He's got like a glowing egg and a gun, which he mislays. And then the like drunken, the alcoholic patriarch of a family decides that he's going to sell them to the Russians for millions of dollars. That's his big plan. And his family have to try and get them these things back, the equipment back for the alien, because they think the alien will just leave them alone if they give him back his stuff. It's essentially a guy in green, uh, like dungarees covered in green porridge, stomping about a woods. The soundtrack's surprisingly quite good. Yeah, it's, I don't know if it's available, like, commercially the whole thing's on uh youtube if you want to watch it there uh, galaxy invader yeah it's weird but very fun and clearly cost tuppence awesome all right great well i i haven't seen this one so uh, hang on let me start again i haven't seen that one so yeah I'll, I'll check it out for sure it sounds uh, a lot of fun and i'll just make sure not to read anything about how it was made 
I don't. There's. There's. I don't think there's anything in it unless there's like whole scene. Unless they just murdered everyone after the film's finished <laughs> or something. <laughs> like, there's not. Not enough happens in the film. Excellent. But there's some. There's some. Like you know, I like. I like bad monster suits. Uh, for some reason, he's wearing like a sort of, uh, like a sort of bondage top over the the monster's got these straps on him, which I guess is what holds his glowing egg on. Yeah, it's very weird. It's very fun. There's a the the alcoholic has a daughter who says, "I hate dad" in every single scene. Which oh. I love uh, I love that kind of like weird writing tick that you get in those films. Me too, very much um, so. Yeah, yeah. I think one either to have on in the background or to have to watch with friends with a drink. Fantastic, much like Sting of Death. Um, yeah. which you know the monster is like Hilarious. I do I do like the design <laughs> of the monster in in a. Uh, entertainment way like it is funny and like the fact that sometimes you can see the ankles of the the guy playing him and all that kind of thing uh <laughs> anyway past couple of weeks uh first up from me and this is I'm, I'm really rushing through this today i'm not sure why um these are the films that we've watched and enjoyed over the past couple of weeks on the planet um in the year 2021 um right good uh first up from <laughs> me is dawson city frozen time from 2016 now this is an astonishing documentary it's a real real gem um the starting point for the film is basically a bunch of previously lost silent movies um were found underneath a swimming pool in dawson city and now dawson city was a frontier town in canada that was at the end of the line for film distribution and it was their job to destroy the films after they played. But they saved a lot of these films. And so this gold rush town uh, basically became a very significant location for film historians. So a place that was once known for gold had this treasure trove of silver. And the documentary uses footage from these silent films and photographs taken at the time to tell the story of the town from its inception, building up to one of the most transcendent endings of any documentary I've ever seen. Uh, I love silent movies and I'm a little bit obsessed with uh, the concept of legacy. So this was a very moving film for me, seeing all of these these uh, movies and all of these actors and actresses that, that were previously kind of lost to time um so i think anyone with a passion for cinema will love this film it's beautifully constructed the music is beautiful so it, yeah it's just an overwhelming experience and it gets the highest possible recommendation from me dawson city frozen time on blu-ray from second run it's just available now it's been out for ages nice i've, I've never even heard of that that sounds fantastic it's amazing you you would love it dan you would absolutely love it I'll give that a look. My next one is another one that you'll probably have to go online for. There was a British DVD of it, but the uh, company that re released it seems to have gone out of business. Their website doesn't exist anymore. But it's quite cheap on eBay uh, uh, or Amazon Marketplace or whatever, but also it's on YouTube in its entirety. Um, it's called The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer. Uh, it's from 1970, directed by Kevin Billington. I had never heard of this. My mother recommended me this, which is insane because I don't think I've ever had like a, a genre film recommended to me by my mother before. Um, it's written by Peter Cook, John Cleese and Graham Chapman. Peter Cook is the lead in it. He's very young. All three of them are in it, uh, along with Denham Elliott and Harold Pinter, of all people. It's amazing. It's kind of the... It's Putney Swope for the political circuit. 
um, insofar as it's about a uh, a man sort of working his way through and, and breaking down from the inside the uh, the political system in Britain. And obviously this is this was made in 1970. We had a Labour government at the time. It's pre-Thatcher, but uh, it's quite terrifyingly prescient with how our current Conservative government is working. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's got an amazing cast. Uh, it's got sometimes that pace, the comedy pacing is a little bit off in the way that like relatively young filmmakers doing comedy in the 70s would have like the leaf it'd be a bit slack in places like it wouldn't feel tight but it's an absolutely fantastic film it blew me away so yeah the rise and rise of michael rimmer i can't recommend it highly enough wow oh man i've got a good feeling about this fortnight's recommendations that sounds fucking amazing um, yeah like how had i not heard of that like i love peter cook yeah same here and yeah harold pinter and yeah yeah just <laughs> fantastic and and politically it sounds on point as well so yeah yeah wonderful um my next recommendation is another masterpiece it's Elia kazan's first movie a tree grows in brooklyn now this one is a stunning emotional experience if you're a fan of it's a wonderful life though i suspect dan you're not a fan of it's a wonderful life is that correct um I was thinking about this over Christmas because, you know, Christmas. Um, I don't know if I've seen the whole film. Wow. I mean, that kind of makes sense to me because you don't really like... I fucking hate Christmas. You hate Christmas (laughs) and you're not a big fan of religious stuff, are you? Oh, no. Yes. No, 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 not for me. No. So, yeah, so Dan, maybe A Tree Grows in Brooklyn isn't quite for you, though there's not really any religious stuff in it and i don't have a problem with religious stuff in films like with dealing with that i like the exorcist yeah you just don't like religious people in real life (laughs) (laughs) i don't like i don't like to feel that the the film is subtly trying to teach me a lesson uh about the good book right got it got it got it Anyway, um, if It's a Wonderful Life does move you, then this film will too. It's ostensibly about a working class family, a mum, a dad, a boy and a girl, and their experiences of living through poverty in Williamsburg during the early part of the 20th century. And it's full of empathy for these people. Um, None of them are all good. None of them are all bad. They're just flawed human beings. So human beings basically um they do stuff you like they do stuff you don't like but it just all coalesces to make you care for them even more i can't really get into the it's a wonderful life side of things without spoilers but you'll know what i mean when you see the picture uh it won a best supporting actor oscar for james dunn and it was nominated for a best screenplay oscar that it definitely should have won it's on the masters of cinema label it's instantly gone into my top 10 favourite films of all time. It's slightly slow. It's very sentimental. But it all kind of builds into this profound experience that has a lot to say about love and truth. The two most important things in the world. And actually, there's also quite a big thread about how important learning is, Dan. Like, just, okay. you know, education and kind of the difference between working class education and the the privileges of the elite i can't go into any more because it's gonna we're gonna get into spoilers but um a tree grows in brooklyn i recommend it 
Cool. Um, next up for me is a modern film, Sam. What? It must be <laughs> from, a modern Korean film. From 2020? No, it's American. What? Yeah, so I heard a little bit about, of buzz about this on the festival circuit, and uh-huh. then I kind of forgot about it. And I I think I thought it was Black Bear. Like, I think I, for some reason, like, muddled this up in my head with Black Bear. Right. I don't, I don't know why I haven't seen Black Bear. But I was looking to see if Black Bear was available yet on VOD. It wasn't. The name of this suddenly came to my head. Uh, I said to Jen, do you want to see a trailer for something? She said, turn off the trailer after a minute. I want to see it. I don't want to spoil anything. So we watched it then and there. We rented it on VOD. Um, It's Save Yourselves. Okay. Have you seen it yet? I haven't, no. Oh, Sam, you're going to fucking love it. And I can't tell you anything about it. (laughs) Uh, It's directed by a real-life couple, Alex Houston Fisher and Eleanor Wilson. It's about uh, a slightly useless pair of New York sort of hip proto hipsters who decide to go off grid for a weekend. Because what's the what's the worst that can happen if you don't take your phone with you to a cabin in the country? And it's an examination of our dependence on technology and how technology can both be an aid but also can drive people apart, how it opens up the world to us but cuts us off from the world around us. Um, It's very funny, it's incredibly astute and it's got obvious comparisons running through it that I can't make that I think will delight you and anyone watching it. Um, I don't know why it's not got people singing from the rooftops about it, it's absolutely brilliant. Like I said, it's available on VOD to buy in the UK. There's a Blu-ray in the States, which I'm going to be picking up because it's got an audio commentary by the uh, writer-directors. I immediately went and read a load of interviews with them after I watched it because I wanted clarity on some stuff, and it was exactly as good as I had hoped it was, if you see what I mean. I mean, we had a big conversation last week about the interpretation of art being as valid valid as the intention of art. Correct, yeah. But But it's really nice to... Like they 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 make some lovely points, which cemented some of the things that I already loved about it. So, yeah, it's it's really really good. And yeah, I also just want to make it clear that sometimes the the intent is more important than the interpretation as well. Um, but you just can't control it. Was the point I was making? But yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, I've just looked it up, and it's on Prime Video, which presumably yeah. is where you it's saw like it. Four pound yeah. fifty to rent. I think four pound four fifty to rent. to buy sounds absolutely fantastic i will check it out myself see i told you i had a good feeling about uh this fortnight's recommendation it was man it was hard to pick i've i've been because you know it's january things are a little slow still uh like jobs are coming in but it's not like super super busy yet we've watched some really good stuff my also rans list is really strong (laughs) i tell you what i'm i'm in exactly the same boat but arrowheads could, could you just stop listening to the podcast for a second? I'm just going to talk directly to Dan here. Um, so just, you know, turn the volume down or something. But um, Dan, save those for future episodes where you're crazy busy and you're struggling. Um, we don't actually have to stick to the, the law of we definitely watched it in the past couple of weeks because a lot of stuff that we watch is from, you know, 1946 and it's been available on Blu-ray for a while. So... Yeah, lit- um, literally the top of my also ran is a is a forties film. <laughs> there you go, exactly. I mean, I've I've I'm looking at my stack of the ten best films that I've watched this month right now, yeah. and uh, I could have chosen any of these films to to talk about this fortnight. But who knows? Maybe they'll come up in you know six months' time. I don't know. Right, Arrowheads, you can turn your volume back up now. Um, How do they know? Huh? How do they know? They can't hear you say that. 
<laughs> that, <laughs> that's the joke. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's it, isn't it, uh, for recommendations this For fortnight. recommendations, yeah, it is. And we're now going to go into extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Now, we both have extra features this week, Precious Arrowhead. We've got some some very cool stuff. Uh, Dan has a great interview with, with Bill Greffe. Uh, but before that... I have some very important information about the Arrow Player, which launched today, if you're listening to this episode as it goes up, which is very exciting. If you head on over to www.arrow-player.com, you will be able to sign up for the service, which is available in the UK, US and Canada. Uh, There are some amazing titles on there at launch, including the world premiere of Adam Stovall's A Ghost Waits, which is a film that we recommended a long time ago when it played at Fright Fest. Um, I think it played at two Fright Fests, in fact. Uh, It's really good fun. It's a really Really good one. I rewatched it today. And I think we'll probably cover it um, on the podcast at some point. It's getting a Blu-ray release as well, um, that one. But you can watch it right now if you want. And there's Arrow Video Classics on there, including Donnie Darko and Hellraiser, which we've done episodes on, stuff like Beyond Reanimator and much more. Um, There are even Arrow Academy titles uh, like The Astonishing, Cinema, Paradiso. We must do that on on an episode in the future. It's an absolute lovely film. I want to go back to that one, yeah. Yeah. Arrow TV titles, they've got Gamora, and some Arrow player exclusives, such as a Lars von Trier season, which includes Antichrist and the house that Jack built, which I'm coincidentally talking about on the Evolution of Horror podcast this Friday. So you can do your homework ahead of that if you want to listen to that. Um, there's going to be extras on there too. Just a, a whole host of cool stuff. So you can get a free 30-day trial starting today and then it's 4.99 per month uh, or 49.99 annually uh, so head on over I, I like this a bit like you know the bit of normal podcasts where they take a break to talk about like mattresses or um you know <laughs> ordering food <laughs> to your door it's a bit like that except i i mean this i believe in this um because uh, arrowheads we are definitely going to be doing films that, that will be on this service um, yeah, at some I think point in the future. So Possibly it will even... have exclusives as well, won't it? There'll be stuff that is digital only exactly. on, the, on the, the service. So. It, this is it. So uh, I think we're probably going to be allowed to, to talk about that stuff. So, um, you know, it is worth your time to head on over to www.arrow-player.com or look for the app on Apple, Roku, fire or wherever you get your apps that arrow player expect to hear more from us on this subject in the coming episodes dan do you have a special offer that you can tell the arrowheads about um no but i meant to talk to you about this before we started recording and i forgot so i'm just going to do it on air and we'll see how it goes i assume this has been brought up with you but i've been chatting to lou about this uh lou over arrow for our listeners uh, about the um about the thing um, we're going to do some curated content, Sam. You've been talk- have you been talking to about this? Of course, yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, okay, cool. I just know that we hadn't talked about it. So yeah, so Sam and I are going to do some some stuff for the for the channel. 
Um, I didn't know we were allowed to announce that yet. So yeah, I, d- we're, we're I didn't gonna... either, but I texted Lou just before we recorded. Oh, fantastic! Check, and she said, "Yeah, it's fine." So fantastic. So yeah, we're going to be choosing some some stuff, either things that we've talked about on the podcast before or new things. Um, doing some some little chats that will go up exclusively for the streaming platform as well. So that's yeah, I, I think it's going to be really fun. Just another way to talk at people exactly so um yes very exciting really really happy to be involved in it and um yeah please do head on over to www.arrow-player.com and sign up today wow that really was (laughs) like an advert (laughs) um so from an advert to some chaos i don't know how how did this interview go down it's a little chaosy you know bill's not a spring chicken anymore and i have a confusing accent so (laughs) see how this goes i mean hopefully it's more about him talking than me but yeah so i i got to sit down uh with grefe on the uh on zoom and talk to him all the way from presumably florida i don't think i actually asked (laughs) uh looking back at uh, some of the films in the box set I'm joined now by Mr. William Graffay, the auteur uh, behind this amazing Arrow box set. Mr. Graffay, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I hope all is well over in the UK. We're surviving just about. Thank you so much. So the focus of this episode of the podcast is specifically Sting of Death. And it was the first of the independent films that you did after your sort of move towards possibly the more mainstream stuff. You talk in some of your interviews about uh, a, a false start on an Elvis project that you, were, that you were involved in. It's also the first film you directed, I believe, that you didn't write yourself or at least originate yourself. Um, how did those two things feed into it being a, a new experience for you as a director? Well, since I had directed to back then in Florida, you know, there were no directors, there was hardly any crew members. Most of the crew members were from Cuba because they'd fled over here after Castro took over and the whole film community out of Havana uh, fled to Miami. So uh, uh, I had directed two films, uh, you know, Racing Fever and The Checkered Flag. So the fellow that uh, wanted to do this uh, uh, sting of death, uh, he was a building contractor. He had absolutely no experience in film, but he just wanted to be a a producer. So he ended up uh, hiring me since I had some experience. And so that's how I got involved in directing Sting of Death. And uh, did you... Uh, as a creative, did you change much about the film when you came on board, or is what we see on the screen pretty much what was on the page? Well, you know, you always change stuff that uh, that works. I mean, like, you know, the dance number uh, we threw in when we got uh, Neil Sedaka to do that song. So, uh, you know, that whole dance thing at the poolside was uh, created. And then... Uh, I think I created more or less his his den, you know, where uh, uh, he come, where the hero comes up into his den, and and we find the den. And anyway, I, I don't know. Everybody, I think, probably knows who Frank Helenlotter is, the director. And and Frank told me he said, "I wish I had that den in in my home I, I'd <laughs> as a 
my own little den. He loved that den we built. You know. The the aesthetic of the film is is one of the things that's so endearing because it's so sort of bright and candy coloured, but the content is you know quite dark. Was that a deliberate juxtaposition, or was that uh, a byproduct of just filming in Florida at the time? Uh, you know, see Florida with the uh, especially the Miami Fort Lauderdale area. It's uh, such a breeze. There's absolutely no smog or anything. And we, we ended up with probably some of the most beautiful photography because, you know, Los Angeles, New York, London or whatever, you know, you guys, everybody you know, has problems with, uh, you know, fog and so forth or, or cloudiness. And uh, so we got a real beautiful look, but uh, the subject matter naturally was a, a little dark. Despite occasional back and forths with LA, you stayed pretty rooted in Florida and even your your sort of bigger Hollywood stuff with James Bond and so on was when they came down to you. You talk in some of your interviews about the huge money comparatively you had on the Bond stuff compared to the smaller films. Did that change? Did any of those Hollywood experiences change your approach to the independent stuff when you went back to the smaller films? No, no, because when you go back, you got to raise the money yourself, and uh, it's hard enough to raise money. So, you know, a few of the films I, I got a little more money on, like The Naked Zoo, I had a pretty good budget on that, and uh, Whiskey Mountain uh, had fairly good money. But, you know, still, even with that good money, I mean, <laughs> We only used 10, 12 people on the crew. And uh, what we used to do is lie a lot and fill the credits up to make it look like we had a bigger crew. Because <laughs> if you look at these Hollywood films today, I mean, it's you're lucky if they only have a, a hundred people in the crew, you know? So anyway, but uh, I think, as I said in one of my other uh, interviews, uh, when I did a psychedelic priest out of Los Angeles, the three people. Uh, I did all the camera work and direction, and, and I had a sound man and, a, and sort of a crazy uh, hippie kid that was the so-called grip. As, as I always say, we, we used to make some of those movies on chewing gum and spit. You talk about some of your inspirations early in life being John Ford and particularly George Stevens's uh, Gunga Din. Did you always have uh, like an epic in your pocket that you would have gone to if you were offered it? Something you wanted to do? Well, I, yeah, I've had a couple. You know, I've got, <laughs> I probably have minimum 10 or 12 screenplays that have never been produced, you know. But uh, I, I had one... Uh, epic that was about the uh, the Indians, you know, which sort of, you know, I, I was always impressed with Drums Along the Mohawk, which John Ford uh, directed. I, I loved that movie when I was a kid. So, you know, but, uh, you know, in the independent world, you, you can dream a lot about these big productions, but your bread and butter is, is making the low-budget stuff, which went into the drive-ins and the local theaters at the time. You know, it, it's been a...
crazy, crazy career. When I did the psychedelic priest, you know, the producer was completely insane. Uh, and uh, we were in a Cadillac convertible he'd rented that we were going down Sunset Boulevard. And I had a handheld Aeroflex camera and I was shooting all the hippies because hippies were all over Sunset Boulevard. And uh, so all of a sudden he said, Lita is calling me. And I said, who the hell's Lita? And he said, oh, she's a witch. She's a real witch. And she lives up in the hills. Uh, she's calling me. We got to go up there. So we drive up in the Hollywood Hills and we come to this like house that looks like a castle. And we go to the door and this big guy comes to the door and he says, yes, what do you want? We're here to see Lita. And so she says, wait here. And so we're waiting. To, so there's a, you know, the hippie kid, the producer, the sound man and myself, the four of us are there. And so Lita comes to the door and she looks at the producer and says, oh, you're putting off bad vibes today. She, <laughs> said, she said to me, you're putting off good vibes. You two come in. And she grabs us and slams the door right in the sound man and the hippie kid face, you know. So we go in and she's sitting on a big throne and she had peacock feathers on each side of her. And she goes, claps her hands. And she says, this little guy comes out, tea is served. And I said, oh, damn, what the hell's in this tea? You know, <laughs> I was scared to death. So we're sipping this tea. And why I'm telling you this story is, is she, uh, she had five pages in Esquire magazine that, uh, that's claiming she was a real witch. But what I experienced with her is after about 15, 20 minutes, we were there and I said to her, I said, you know, our two guys are out there in, in, in the porch, so she come in, boom, boom. So the guy comes, lets the two, so the hippie kid is coming in, he's half stoned, you know, he's coming in, just jiving, and she goes, points her finger, boom, sit. And he just froze right in his track, <laughs> boom, sat down, like he was paralyzed, you know. So I don't know if you believe in witches, but I saw him <laughs> some way she hypnotized him, boom, <laughs> like that, you know. Thank you so much for giving up your time. Okay, well, thank you, take care. Thank you, keep well. There we go. Fantastic, excellent. Well, there we go. And Bill, once again, I do apologize for my, um, my reaction to your, uh, your working practices. I'm sure you wouldn't do any of those things today if you decided to make another film and uh yeah best wishes and i'm gonna stop talking again uh dan <laughs> what are we doing next fortnight what are we doing next fortnight it's one of yours isn't it we're doing uh we're doing the film that i talked about at the start of the episode which is your film <laughs> are we going to wreck again yeah we're going wreck. straight to wreck oh for some reason i thought we were doing one of yours next just because you know alternating but yeah we're talking about wreck Oh, yeah. So if you haven't seen Wreck, yes. and it's one of the bigger titles on uh, that Arrow have released, 
Um, I mean, not game big, but it's newer than game. Um, really do go and watch it uh, because we're definitely going to be talking about the ending, among other things. Uh, it's an absolute uh, gem. I'd say it's in the definitely in the five best found footage films of all time. I reckon. Yeah, I, I I'd say that it's it's fighting out for being the best. Actually, it's up there. Yeah, it's just an extraordinary film. And Three best. Yeah, the I, I've actually heard the commentaries that are on that disc, and they are both fucking amazing. So I really do recommend. Like Dan says, please pick up Wreck before we do uh, the episode uh, in a fortnight. Social you tell media, us who Dan. Are the, who are the commentaries? Uh, so it's the two directors and Plaza that's one, and Balaguero. Yeah. And then it's Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Oh, nice. And obviously she wrote an a, a excellent book about found footage horror. And so, yeah. Anyway, we'll go into that next time. Just pick it up, precious yeah, yeah. arrowhead, and uh, we'll see you in two weeks. But Dan, would you like to uh, pimp your social media? Well, yeah, I, well, I should have said this last episode, but I think I didn't know last episode. And if this goes up on February the 1st, then I think voting has closed. So I can't demand that you will go and vote for me. But you but, can but show on off. The, on the off chance that voting hasn't shut yet, if you listen to this on the day it launches, please go and check the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, uh, see if the voting is still open on February the 1st. And if it is... Uh, spare me a vote or two. I've been nominated for the makeup effects for Possessor and the creature effects for Color Out of Space, which is obviously incredibly exciting and gratifying. If you can't find a link for it, although it should be relatively easy to find, my pinned tweet at the moment it uh, contains a retweet of the Fangoria like announcement. So my Twitter is at 13fingerfx. Please, please go and vote for me. It means a lot to me. There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, no social media for me. I'm just going to ask that you give us a five-star rating on iTunes, and then I'm going to do my catchphrase. Thank you so much oh, for listening. Oh, before you do, Sam. Yes. <laughs> as is appropriate to interrupt with your catchphrase. Um, not just a five-star rating, and this has just come to me. What I would like you to do is to go back through our old catalogue, and if you see a film we've talked about that you think a friend who doesn't normally listen to podcasts would mm. like to hear forward it to a friend or many friends that's uh, uh, an excellent idea i'm i'm not affronted at being interrupted for that valuable information yes <laughs> please do much as you would recommend a movie to your friend please recommend our podcast um what what some of your favorite episodes what would you say is a go-to to to show off the best of the arrow video podcast uh, it, Dan. It, it's really hard i mean to be honest i always like it best when we disagree about the film and so the baby's always going to be up there for me well sweet jesus i mean <laughs> we're hoping to get new listeners not yeah know, i mean get so, ostracized yeah, from our communities like i said i think that it's probably best to pick a film that you think your the, the recommendee would enjoy so if they like you know 90s mainstream thrillers that maybe were a little more under the radar than they deserved then the recent episode we did on the game would be fantastic um there's plenty of giallo to choose from like you know we've covered a wide range of subjects the donnie darko one's good that's a good entry point i'd say nice and mainstream yeah i'd say carrie Candyman yep. and yep. robocop they're, they're there probably the ones that I feel kind of represent us best, but and hopefully your friends would have seen those ones. Anyway, I'm supposed to be wrapping this up. 
here it is the the thing you've all been waiting for the, the old catchphrase thank you Say so much for listening and we promise to be more professional next time next time bye-bye bye